0: Hey everybody, welcome to Mail It, the official podcast of the United States Postal Service. I'm your co-host, Dale Parsan.
1: And I'm Yasmin DiGiulio. In this episode, we're going to talk about military mail. Letters and care packages sent to the men and women serving in the U.S. Armed Forces are a big part of military mail, of course. But there's also a whole history behind military mail that dates back to Revolutionary War times.
0: Here to tell us all about that is this episode's guest, Lynn Heidelbaugh. Lynn is a curator at the Smithsonian National Postal Museum here in Washington, D.C.
1: She was also our very first guest on It. If you'll remember, we talked to Lynn for Episode 1 about the history of the
2: zip code. Lynn, welcome back. Thank you. I'm pleased to be speaking with you about another aspect of U.S. history in the mail today.
0: Well, we appreciate it. Lynn, let's start off. Let's do an easy one. For our audience, what is military mail?
2: Oh, well, that's the easy one, but it gets right to the essence. Um, It's how we send and receive mail with the men and women serving in the armed forces who are stationed abroad. And that all includes postal services at domestic rates. Um, This includes military personnel and civilians who are working with the military and have duties uh, while they're working outside of the U.S., um, and what fascinates me about military mail, I think it encompasses everything that it takes to move the mail, to provide a variety of services to U.S. residents and those in the military. It means. Um, points where it's uh, an heightened need for information and uh, connections to those that they love, their communities in the U.S., and it really has broad implications of personal social lives as well as the working lives of the military.
1: Lynn, so does military mail include more than just the letters and the care packages that we might associate with sending things to the military? Does it also include supplies and military gear?
2: It can. And typically, that's been um, individuals sending their own gear for their own personal needs, their own duties. Um, it's typically not the teams or groups um, sending that. Um, and you, they can send uh, uniforms and things like that. Um, but any packages that they send to themselves, uh, they can't contain firearms or explosives. Those are actually um, screened for. uh, And there's other additional restrictions depending on the location and customs regulations. Uh, But People can send a, a lot of material of things that they'll need uh, while they're stationed abroad. So they can send uh, up to 70 pounds. And it, it really is the only choice that they have to be able to, to send this material because the U.S. mail um, can reach these spots, um, unlike other contract services. And um, it's not just the, the military sending it to themselves. Um, they also send gifts home, remembrances, and uh, certainly receiving care packages from the U.S. as well.
0: Well, it's exciting to know that we can send things back and forth. And when I think of getting mail delivery and, and pickups and whatnot, I always think of our iconic postal vehicles and our postal employees. Uh, who's in charge of military mail? Do we have uh, postmasters stationed overseas at military bases that help out? What, what's it like?
2: We do. And it's um, it's been a combination of things over the years, but there's always been Uh, collaboration and coordinated agreements between the Postal Service and branches of the Armed Forces. And for most of the U.S. history, each of the different branches has an agreement with the Postal Service. Um, This is because there's very different needs for the Navy and Marines, um, particularly reaching mail for ships um, and naval bases, um, as compared to what the Army has needed. But since 1980, the armed forces have jointly coordinated mil- military mail operations through the Military Postal Service Agency, which has uh, cooperation agreements with the Postal Service and ensures that all military mail meets U.S. mail regulations as well as military regulations. And so simply put, it's um, Postal Service handles all the mail within the United States. So if that's going to A military base, uh, an army fort within the United States, that's all um, U.S. Postal Service. But um, once it leaves the U.S. for a U.S. military um, station or ship, then the military is in charge of the transportation and the processing operations and the management at those sites. And you can see this in the addresses. Um, For the Army and Air Force, they use addresses with the letters APO. And for the Navy, they use, and the Marines, they use addresses with FPO. And that stands for Fleet Post Office. So it's right there in the addresses that you can see who's uh, working the mail.
0: Yasmin mentioned earlier um, in regards to U.S. military mail, more generally dates back to the Revolutionary War. How did mail become such an important part of U.S. military history?
2: Yeah, it's um, it's right there from, from the beginning. It's um, needed to move uh, important communication. It's needed to move um, that, that information over distances and materials as well. I can imagine how important it is
1: to have that private communication as part of your military efforts, so it, it's really interesting to hear that perspective from you. Has that kind of always been the case? What was military mail like back in revolutionary times? Yeah, and, and
2: privacy um, enters into that right away in the revolutionary times because uh, the American revolutionaries did not want the the British to intercept their mail. Um, And it played a strategic role in taking the control of the postal service from that colonial British royal mail system um, and establishing what became uh, the American postal uh, system. It used the same post offices. It used the same postal routes. um, And, in fact... The postmasters and post riders who were transporting that mail for the revolutionaries, they were exempt from military service during the war because it was that important to keep that communication flowing.
0: So at this time, what would we expect to see going through military mail communications? I'm assuming it's not care packages.
2: Right. Um and the, the mail um, really before the, the 20th century couldn't uh, – was not handling uh, heavy packages, you know, a c- couple ounces we're talking about. But this included newspapers. Newspapers are very important to uh, move in the mail during uh, colonial times and the revolutionary times because this was your information source. But people writing letters um, and informing each other, and those letters were too often to be circulated. So that included those official communiques with the, the military. They were also keeping the Continental Congress informed. Um, And as I mentioned before, they didn't want that to get into the British royal hands, their opposition. And so it became um, baked into uh, the system that they they built, that the the mail that was within the American uh, post was not to be be opened. Um, And that's a a significant part that carries over from the Revolutionary War and uh, is put into the Postal Act of 1792. And that concept of privacy continues today for U.S. mail.
1: I was going to say that is part of our mission, I believe, is to provide that secure form of communication. So it's really interesting to hear where that all came from back with
2: the Revolutionary War. How did military
1: mail evolve in the years after the Revolutionary War?
2: Um, it's It sort of follows the history of uh, the U.S. As the U.S. is expanding, um, military mail also expands um, and has to go Uh, Greater distance, uh, the mail volume rises over the 19th century as the American population increases, as the the size of the Army and Navy and Marine Corps increase. And it's a story of um, U.S. Western expansion as the U.S. moved into uh, Western lands, uh, removing American Indians from those lands, claiming the territory It needed um, to have a communication system and a transportation uh, routes to connect the government and commercial hubs and people with each other back in the East. And um, so where military forts were established, uh, where the armed forces went, um, so did the post office to connect uh, people.
0: I want to skip forward to the Civil War. When the country is being divided, um, what impact did the Civil War have on U.S. military mail?
2: It was transformational for the mail and for the Americans as as a whole. Um, but it has a real significance, I find, in the personal letters and in, in the motivations for sending and receiving mail was profound at this time. There's evidence in the personal letters of the emotional and psychological depth and uh, meaning that mail has and the act of writing and reading those letters, sharing them with friends and neighbors, and this comes at a time when Americans had started to become familiar with um, writing letters. So this is kind of a background of what happens when people are um, having to volunteer for a service in the Civil War. They're, have, they're being drafted, and for many men, this is the first time that they are away from their home cities, their towns, their farms, and away for a long period of time. So there's a deep motivation to stay in contact. Um, and it really becomes a time where people are expressing themselves and becoming very comfortable with using the mail to communicate and uh, and use it for very personal reasons. We've
1: talked a little bit about the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, which were really primarily fought on the land that now makes up America But we've also had wars overseas. Um, So how did military mail adapt when the U.S. armed forces were outside of the U.S.? What what was the first war that used international military mail?
2: Americans have been involved in a number of conflicts outside uh, the continental um, U.S. before um, in in the 19th century. But um, in particular, I find that uh, in 1898 with the Spanish-American War, there's an approach that the Postal Service used Uses to address the needs for the military mail in a way that has affected um, how the mail has been operated uh, since for the military. Uh, And it's because there were such a number of Americans fighting on on several fronts. They were fighting in the Caribbean and in the Pacific. And these were followed by long stints of being stationed in distant territories. But they found that their greatest challenge was delivering to the front. So it's... it was easier to get the mail to um, the, the overseas, but it's hard to then get overland and to the Americans who might be um, deployed in the front lines
0: so Lynn I I can't help but think, you know, when we talk about the Pacific, when we talk about the Caribbean, those areas are, are really adjacent to us. And while at the time it, it was a new challenge for uh, mail service to, to get to our military personnel, I want to talk a little bit more about the 20th century. When we start talking about having troops stationed in Europe and elsewhere, um, what, how did that change military mail? I would, I would imagine that these same problems become exacerbated.
2: They do, and it changes what, um, the time that it takes to move the mail. It's uh, greater distances, and it's really great challenges. You have to transport this mail overseas. Um, customers have, are trying to adjust their expectations. Um, the, moving the mail overseas in World War I and World War II, it can take two weeks to just simply get it onto a ship and off of a ship. And during World War I, they actually developed a system that was quite profound about making a flexible addressing system, which we use today. Um, You'll see it in that APO, the Army Post Office designation, the FPO, the Fleet Post Office designation. And those APOs and FPOs use numbers uh, to designate military post offices. And those became the addresses for the Army units, the the Navy ships, um, and it became a way to secure that information, but also it meant that the troops that were on the move, um, the, the naval fleets that are, are moving to different locations, they can change their address, um, and those address can be can be following them, um, and you just simply change the number for, for their new location uh, rather than revealing those locations.
1: We've talked a little bit about the importance of mail privacy at the Postal Service, but it's my understanding that military enlisted personnel and officers themselves can't assume privacy for their personal letters.
2: Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. During World War I and World War II, the military censored the mail of military service members. And I I'd like to um, look at a phrase that I, I came across in one of the official documents about uh, censorship in World War One. And this was a pamphlet that was given to the soldiers as they were being uh, shipped out to Europe um, to fight the war. And in the pamphlet, it told them what they could mail. And it simply stated that mail is a privilege. It's not a right. And so the meaning behind that is that the mail is being provided by the military as um, a service to, to the personnel. It enabled the personnel to use the service, as long as they invited by all the military regulations, and understood that their mail was subject to the needs of the military for security, and that this is not the mail that they're used to in their civilian lives. So, their mail was going to be to be opened and read by their commanding officer. Um, and they were going to be looking for information. So they were told to leave out information. So best to just not even include it in your letter. And this was kind of um, information that would have uh, consequences if it would fell into enemy hands. So they didn't want people to write about the location where they were. They didn't want them to talk about destinations or battle plans or the troop numbers. They didn't even want you to talk about sort of the health of uh, the company, Uh, And they certainly didn't want you to put photographs of of people in there um, and to really show locations. The whole idea was that um, this information shouldn't fall into enemy hands. And so what they did was open that mail, look through it. Uh, If somebody did put in that information, uh, the sensor would black it out. Um, They would cut out parts of letters. I found letters where like half of a page would be missing or a hole would be cut out of it. Um, And sometimes they would pull entire letters out of the mail.
0: So we talked about the big impacts from the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and and what it did to military mail. Have there been other major changes in mail brought on by by other major events, other wars? (sighs)
2: Yeah, I want to talk about um, a a change that was uh, temporary in World War II, and it was a development of a particular kind of mail that became called V-mail, and that was short for Victory Mail, and that embraced that um, propaganda for the war effort and getting everyone involved in the war effort. And this really emphasized that people should write letters and uh, help boost morale, and The thing was that they had to handle a huge number of uh, letters during the war to all the Americans deployed to Europe and Pacific and fighting in these distant areas. And you had to move millions and billions of pounds and, and letters. And how would you do that? And how would you be able to also send all the other equipment that you needed? How would you be able to get all the troops on board ship and um, be able to get uh, armaments and medicine? Um, But also those letters were really important too because you wanted to have um, letters that would lift people's spirits and keep them connected to home. So in recognizing this, the, the Postal Service and the military worked to look for a way to reduce the bulk and size of the mail but also retain the the number of letters that were going. So they sought to shrink it down. And what they did was they shrunk it down by standardizing stationery and then photographing that stationery. So they gave Americans um, a form that they could fill out, um, and then they would have that form uh, photographed, and the film would be shipped out by um, flights overseas. And that meant it was lighter, smaller, smaller cargo that could go on airplanes. And the negatives would be printed, and uh, they would be printed on photographic paper and what would be delivered was these very small letters, um, which people sort of loved and hated at the same time because it was a quarter size of the original. So you had to have some good eyesight or use a magnifier to read it. But what it all meant was that uh, you got a tangible piece of that mail. Um, You got a tangible piece of home and uh, you were getting regular mail service. But um, at a quarter of the size, and it meant that you were also contributing to saving the material and saving cargo space. So you were doing a lot for the war effort by using this very technical uh, mailing system.
0: How much of an impact would V-Mail have on the delivery of letters?
2: Well, officials estimated that V-Mail saved up to ninety-eight percent of that cargo weight and space. So that meant a lot of other materials could go, but the letters were still moving. So think about uh, when they shrunk it down to uh, the microfilm. That reel of microfilm could contain 1,500 letters, Um, and a sack of all these reels weighed about 45 pounds um, and carried about 150,000 letters, whereas uh, a sack of regular mail weighed well over a ton. And all told, the estimates are about a billion letters were sent by V-Mail. So it did have a significant impact on the delivery and also on opening up cargo space. Is there anything comparable to V-Mail today? Yeah, there have been um, forms of uh, hybrid mail. So using uh, different technologies and and creating a printed form uh, that gets delivered. In 2004, the uh, Marine Corps uh, were using what was called moto mail uh, in in uh, Iraq, and they were using this um, for that what that phrase said for motivational mail. So it was to try to reduce the time that the mail was um, taking to be transported from from the U.S. to the forces uh, U.S. forces in Iraq, and so what. They asked customers to do was to write that letter online, send it electronically, and then it was transmitted um, to the uh, Marine Corps in station abroad, and then that was printed and delivered. And the Army did something similar in 2010 for U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Uh, They called it HUA mail, Um, and that mail could be sent in as little as 24 hours, whereas sending regular mail. Could take about 14 days or so to reach the armed forces. Were these partnerships
1: with the Postal Service? Is it like a regular letter with a stamp on it that would get sent away for processing, or was this fully within these military branches? Uh, they're
2: within the military branches, um, and the uh, internet service was set up, but uh, these were transmitted to the postal clerks of the Marine Corps and postal clerks of the Army um, handling it as mail and printing it. Um, So these had the security and privacy of of mail.
0: I'm very curious about individuals or military personnel to receive mail when they're out on a ship or maybe a submarine. Are there, you know, are there processes in place for that or do they just kind of send it to a, um, a base and they pick them all up at once?
2: No, they can um, send the mail to the ship um, at sea, um, and to submarines uh, when the submarine surfaces. These are generally done in uh, shipments of of other supplies. So, um, a another ship will come alongside uh, and transport. Um, things that are, you know, essentials like food and medicine um, and other equipment. Uh, and the mail is part of that shipment. Uh, it can include a lot of packages. Um, it can include uh, letters as well. So there's often a call for a lot of crew to come out and help um, sort this mail because everybody wants to get their packages as soon as possible. So a lot of people will pitch in and, uh, you know, sort of cargo bays get uh, full of this mail, but it's quickly distributed to individuals.
1: I think that has been one constant throughout our conversation today is just all of these innovations, everything that the Postal Service and the military do to really keep that connection between this, the troops, um, the military personnel and their loved ones back home.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's really kind of an emotional story in many ways and and highlights the impact that mail has on people um, and that that meaning of what it means to communicate over a distance and try to connect people.
0: Wonderful. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today to talk to us a bit more about military mail.
2: Thanks. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today.
0: Okay, everyone, it's time for Did You Know. This is a chance for us to share some interesting details about the Postal Service that most people probably don't know. Yasmin, mind if I get us started on this one? Sure. Great. One of the more interesting things that Lynn talked about during this episode was how the movement of mail had to keep up with expansion as the country grew and mail volume increased. Most of what we discussed involved overland travel. But, did you know that steamboats played a very important role in moving mail across the country throughout the first half of the 19th century.
1: Tell me more.
0: (laughs) It all started in 1807, when Robert Fulton's first successful steamboat line connected New York City to Albany via the Hudson River. At the time, steamboats traveled only 6 miles per hour. That may have been slow, but they were also dependable. That made them a great candidate for mail delivery.
1: Slow and steady wins the race, after all.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it does indeed. Beginning in 1808, letters were carried by steamboat one of two ways. They were either carried by crew and passengers, bypassing local post offices, or the letters were transported under the existing provisions for ship letters. That meant that postmasters at ports of call gave ship captains two cents for each letter and then charged letter recipients six cents postage.
1: It sounds like mail taking those routes was doing an end run around the Postal Service. I imagine that was bad for business.
0: Yeah, it was. To help limit this revenue loss, in 1823, Congress declared waterways regularly traveled by steamboats to be post roads. That made it illegal for private express companies to carry mail on them. Touché. By the late 1820s, the Post Office Department had contracted for mail to be carried by steamboats along the East Coast. By 1827, steamboats were also carrying mail under the contract between Mobile, Alabama, and New Orleans. Between 1845 and 1855, the distance mail was transported by steamboat nearly doubled, from about 7,600 miles to over 14,000 miles.
1: Sounds like business was booming.
0: And it was about to get even better. In November of 1848, Postmaster General Cave Johnson started setting up post offices in newly acquired territory of California.
1: His name was really Cave?
0: Yes, it was. And under his leadership, steamboats under contract with the Navy Department were carrying mail from New York to California via the Isthmus of Panama. What's really interesting here, this was well before the Panama Canal. When ships reached Panama, the mail was taken off and transported in canoes or on pack animals about 50 miles to the Pacific Coast. Another steamship then collected that mail on the Pacific side and headed north.
1: That sounds like a really complicated trip. Can you imagine the logistics of doing that on a regular basis?
0: Yeah, it could take mail more than a month to make that journey. People living in Los Angeles in 1850, for example, didn't learn that California had been admitted to the Union until six weeks after the fact. That kind of lag time is what eventually led the Postal Department to look for more efficient overland routes. By the time the Transcontinental Railroad opened in 1869, a whole new era of mail transport had arrived.
1: Incredible! Speaking of faster mail delivery, did you ever wonder how postal pilots navigated the country in the days before radar and GPS?
0: I actually hadn't thought about it.
1: When the U.S. Postal Service committed to flying mail from New York City to San Francisco in 1920, it wasn't easy for pilots to stay on track. They often had to rely on landmarks or flying by dead reckoning. Flights were grounded at night when local landmarks and onboard flight instruments were impossible to see.
0: That's not how the Postal Service is supposed to work.
1: You're right, it isn't. So, in 1923, to enable night flying on the transcontinental airmail route, the Post Office Department installed luminescent flight instruments in its mail planes. The department also began building a lighted airway to guide pilots at night. In about two years, the department lit the way from New York to Salt Lake City using a system of revolving beacon lights at landing fields. The fields were about 25 miles apart, and had beacon lights that could be seen up to 80 miles away. Between Chicago and Cheyenne, smaller flashing lights, visible for up to 9 miles, were installed every 3 miles.
0: Well, then radar came along and made it all obsolete.
1: Yes, but it was quite revolutionary for its time. In fact, in 1923, the post office department was awarded the Collier Trophy, a top aviation prize for, quote, successfully demonstrating to the world the practicability of night flying in commercial transportation. Very cool. Well, that wraps up this installment of Did You Know? Dale, what did you think about our conversation with Lynn?
0: I thought it was fantastic. I was was really fascinated by the idea of how the U.S. mail system was broken into two entities during the Civil War, and that processes had to be put into place to get mail north versus south. It makes complete sense now that I think about it, but mail isn't something that I'd put much thought into when considering such a pivotal moment in our nation's history. What about you?
1: It's great that you bring that up, because... This conversation really highlighted to me how much mail is a part of our American history. It's It's been influential in many of the wars that we fought in, like the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, as you mentioned. And even to this day, mail serves as a great way to connect with those who are stationed abroad. I think for me, one thing that really stood out to me was all of these innovations that are part of everyday life now at the Postal Service really came from very specific needs um, during the Civil War and, and other times of conflict. So it's really interesting to me to see that sort of enduring history present in our everyday lives now.
0: Absolutely. Great points. Well, that wraps us up for this episode of Mailin' It. Don't forget to subscribe to Mail It wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss the next episode. And follow along on Instagram at US Postal Service, Twitter at USPS, and on Facebook.